going to ask you a question this morning, and I'm going to put some pictures up um, on the screen. Hopefully that screen's working. Good. Um, how many of you remember this TV show, Scooby-Doo? Still around, apparently, but it was around when I was a kid. Um, so what does that have in common with the next one? The next one, The Wizard of Oz. And what does that have in common with the next one, Mission Impossible? Does anyone know what Scooby-Doo... The Wizard of Oz, and I've never had these three things in a sermon before. Um, Scooby-Doo, Wizard of Oz, and Mission Impossible have in common. Well, here is the answer, because you don't know the answer, okay? So let me tell you. In each of these, there is a big reveal moment. So at the end of Scooby-Doo, the villain or the ghost was always the caretaker, wasn't he? The caretaker in a white sheet, all right? If you're not British, you probably haven't got a clue what I'm talking about, or American, okay? But, but that, basically, that's what happened. At the end of Scooby-Doo, the villain or the ghost was always the caretaker in a white sheet. And there's that moment when the white sheet went, oh, it was the caretaker. A little bit of disappointment, to be honest. In Wizard of Oz, the moment was, uh, at the end of the film, when the curtain is pulled back, and you see this all-powerful wizard, and it's a little old man. A little bit disappointing. And then the Mission Impossible, especially the first one or the second one, if you've seen that film, when Tom Cruise, when, when the villain rips the mask off and it's actually Tom Cruise underneath and another mask goes off and it's somebody else and another mask and it just keeps going. And this moment of revelation, okay, when the, when the, the sheet goes off, when the curtain comes back and when the mask is pulled off, always leads to a little bit of disappointment. And in the life of Jesus, there was a big reveal moment in his life, but it didn't lead to disappointment. And in week one of this series, we looked at uh, the ascension when Jesus left the earth and went to heaven. Last week, Jane did a brilliant job looking at the temptation of Jesus in the desert. And I'm looking at something called the transfiguration, which is a very big word, but we're going to explain it to you this morning. It's Jesus revealing who he really is on planet earth. And this account comes in many of the Gospels, but we're going to look at the one in Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 28. And it says this. Here's the story. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And listen to this phrase. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. So in other words, the glory was there, but they were sleepy. But during that moment, they became fully awake. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Anyone ever had that disease that I've had, all right? He didn't know what he was saying. We've all had that. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Technically, in Christian theology and doctrine, this is called the transfiguration. And that word transfiguration comes from a compound of two Latin words, trans, which means across, and figura, which means form or shape. In other words, when something is changing, when the form or the shape of something or someone is changed, that's called a transfiguration. And one day Jesus took these three guys, just three of the guys, not all of them, Peter, James and John, up on a mountain. And there it was like the curtain was pulled back. The mask came off. 
the white sheet flew off. But they weren't disappointed because they saw that this man, who they'd spent almost three years with at this point, like the best part of, was not just a man, but was the Son of God. This was a defining moment for Peter, James, and John. Who's Jesus to you? I'm not asking you if you're a Christian, because I know that most of you are. Who is Jesus to you? You see, to many people, maybe you're not yet a Jesus follower, maybe you're not yet a Christian, and and, and you're just checking this out. To you, who is Jesus? I mean, the people that now still say that Jesus was a myth or a fairy tale or a legend, I have to say, please, no serious historian, atheistic historian, will really say that that's true. Jesus was a literal man. He lived on planet Earth. But is that all he was to you? He is to many people. To some, maybe Jesus is kind of delicate and impotent, a crutch-type figure invented for weak people that can't get through life without that kind of thing. To some, Jesus is a great man or a prophet or a teacher, like a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King. To some, he's a holy man. To many Christians, he is a holy man. He is the Son of God, but he's out there. He's disconnected. He's unreachable. We don't understand him. And I want to suggest that to some and to many People who still go to church, who still follow Jesus, Jesus is a figure of disappointment. It's like even though you're still a Christian and even though you still go to church and do all that, actually, you follow Jesus passionately, but something happened in your life and that led to disappointment and you can't get over it. And do you know what? What you need more than anything else is a defining moment. You need almost the curtain to be pulled back for you to see Jesus, who he really is. Just a little glimpse Just a little glimpse is all it took for a defining moment for these guys. But you know, the questions that I have is, why? Why do this? Why now? And why only these three? Context is very important. He's been talking about his suffering and his death, which is coming up. He's towards the end of his ministry. So he takes these three guys, not all of them, just these three, and he gives them this experience of who he really is. Because in the future, they're going to need to know that. They're going to need to look back on this day and say, hey, I was there on that day. When it got really tough in the future, when there were questions and there were doubts and obviously the cross is to come and all of that and in the tomb, they remember, hang on a minute, I was there on that day. I was there on that day. I know that he's not just a man. He's more than that. Got to become a defining moment. And actually later, two of the guys, John and Peter, write about their experience of Jesus. Listen to the words. Um, 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And I can imagine John as he's writing that saying, and I know that because I saw it. I was there on the mountain and I saw that God is light. There was no darkness in him. Peter, 2 Peter 1.16 writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. I was there. I was there on the mountain and I saw this wasn't just a man. This is divine. I was there. I was eyewitnesses. In order for them to have a defining moment, though, folks, God had to get their full attention. They were sleepy. They had to become fully awake. Question for you this morning. What would it take for God to get your full attention? You know, I want to suggest that it's harder than ever for God to get our attention. Not because God has lost any of his power, but because of us. And I want to throw three things at you this morning. The first one is this. We are the distracted generation. We are a generation that is distracted more than any other generation on planet Earth. Now, you will have heard of attention deficit disorder. It's a growing issue in our culture and in our world. 
And I acknowledge that that is a genuine thing. But I want to suggest that many of us live in an attention deficit place. Whether we would say that we've got ADD or not, we live with attention deficit. You see, everything is too slow for us. Nothing is stimulating enough for us. And technology, folks, even though I love it and I'm using it and I've got it right in front of me, technology is not helping. I've been reading a lot of research and stuff around this recently. I'm not an expert, so I don't want to claim to have read a book and be an expert. But it's really interesting how much is being looked at in the area of technology right now and how much of it might actually be challenging some of our attitudes. There's a lot of research that suggests that young people who spend extensive amounts of time staring at computer screens or video games are more likely to develop attention deficits in later life. And what we do is we think, oh, our kids haven't got any attention span. Give them a tablet, give them a video game, and it will help them. And the research that's coming out now is suggesting it's the opposite. It's the opposite. It's creating more and more attention deficit later on in life. Then there's the idea that technology makes us better connected. Makes us better connected. I'm just going to say who's got a phone. Mine's not in my pocket for one. That's okay. Um, anyone got a phone on them? Yeah, like all of you have, okay? And there's, this, there's a YouTube video clip um, called I Forgot My Phone. And I asked the first service who'd seen it because nearly 50 million people have seen it. Has anyone seen it in the second service? I forgot my phone. Okay, none of you are in the 50 million people who've seen this apart from me, all right? But if you check it out, it's a really interesting little two and a half, three minute clip. And it follows a girl who is trying to connect with her friends and with life, but she can't because of the phone. And the phone makes us think that we're better connected, but it's a lie. And there's a great moment in the middle of that clip where she goes out bowling with her friends. And she's obviously a little nervous about throwing the ball. And she plucks up the courage and she throws the ball down the the alleyway and she gets a strike. And she turns around and in that moment, she turns around to get approval from her nine friends who are all with her. And every single one of them are on the phone. And her face just hits the floor because she turns around for a moment of connection because they've gone out together. But they're not together because every one of them is connecting to somebody else out in cyberspace. They're not with the actual physical people who are in the room. And I'm saying that as someone who suffers from this as well. And my wife will tell you that's true. And I'm being really challenged about this now in my own life. We think we're more together because we've got technology, but actually we're more and more distracted. Technology is affecting our brain in an unhealthy and destructive way. Listen to this quote. As it turns out, receiving and answering a notification on our phone results in a hit of dopamine, which is a chemical neurotransmitter associated with the motivation and reward response in the human brain. Dopamine is also released in high quantities when we consume drugs or have sex. Social media notifications can have the same addictive effect. In other words, the research suggests that when your phone goes off and you have to answer it, you have to answer it because in your body, in your brain, is released a hit of dopamine, which is addictive. And if you think, I don't struggle from that, put your phone away for a week. Put your phone away now. Don't answer it now. Don't go for the notification when it goes now. And you'll see whether you're addicted or not. What we do is we go to our phones for a short-term hit, but it doesn't last And it affects the brain's ability to retain information. A lot of research about how we learn and how whenever you're distracted by technology, something happens in the process between your short-term memory and your long-term memory, which puts a block in it. While I'm teaching this morning from the Bible, if you're distracted by your phone, all the flow of information that you're processing is cut off. It's stopped. It dies. 
A lot of research says that more analog kind of ways of writing things down with a pen is the best way to retain information. Gemma's doing that because she was at the first service and she heard me say that then. Yeah, I know, you put your phone away. <laughs> but it really is. Playing board games, you know, talking to people who are in the same room as you is one of the best ways of connecting with each other. Sounds ridiculous that I'm even saying this. But you see, what we have is we have a generation who are distracted. And this is not just young people. This is now all of us. Although I think for our young people, it's scary. I was reading again about an article called this. I love the title. Why kids are getting stupider. Why texting, Facebook, Twitter and Google are creating generation clueless. Really frightening stuff. And you know, countries like China and South Korea are way ahead of us when it comes to internet speed, access to smartphones. They're also way ahead of us when it comes to the amount of centers they've got for counseling people who are addicted to the internet. Scary. We've got new issues facing our culture. We have Facebook depression. When you look at your Facebook profile and it's not as exciting as someone else's. We have FOMO. Anyone know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. It's a big issue. We have nomophobia, phone separation anxiety. And I want to help you this morning. And the stewards are going to come with the bags. And they're going to, you're going to put all your phones into the bags. And we're going to see who has phone separation anxiety here this morning. So guys, if you could just start that process. What? Some of you are already twittering like this, aren't you? Now listen, we can respond. We can respond, guys. We can self-regulate. We can use technology. We can make it a tool, not a master. And you know what else we can do? We can say, Jesus, would you get my full attention? And through all of this distraction, I want to see you. That's what happened to these three guys on that hill. They fully, fully got, gave God, Jesus, their attention. But you see, not only are we the distracted generation, but also we focus on the wrong things. See, in verse 33, Peter sees these two people appear alongside Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? Moses and Elijah. And to, to Peter, as a good Jewish boy, he's got everything here. Because Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. So he's got the law and the prophets and the Messiah. I mean, it's the whole deal. He's got like the whole of his faith in one moment on the mountain. And he does what you and I often do. He tries to bottle it. He tries to preserve it. He tries to protect it. He says, let's build shelters and let's stay here on the mountain and sack everybody else. Because I don't really care. Because we've got you and we've got Moses and we've got Elijah and we've got all we need. So let's stay as we are, that's great. And I know that some of you this morning wouldn't say that you are Christians. You'd say that you're not Jesus followers. And what I want to do now is I want to address those of you who are, okay? So if you're not a Christian, you can just sit back and relax, all right? Because this doesn't really apply to you. But if you are a Christian, this really applies to you. And I want to, as your senior pastor, address some issues that I think we need to think about as a church. You see, Peter's response highlights what we as Christians and churches have been doing all the way through the last 2,000 years. When God does something good, we want to protect it and we hold on to it. And it's not the intention of why God did it. We want to put a shelter around it and we want to keep it just for us. And that's not why it happened. Let me put up another picture. I've never put all these pictures up in a talk before. Here's a picture of an old sofa. Anyone got an old sofa still? Now, when you were married, okay, those of you who are married... You would have gone out maybe in your 20s or your 30s, wherever you got married. And I mean, Alison, we're in our early 20s. Let's use us as an example. We bought our first sofa, old sofa, loved it. At the time, it was cutting edge. Okay, we loved that sofa. 
over time, that new sofa, cutting edge, modern sofa, becomes an old sofa, doesn't it? Not quite so cutting edge, not quite so with it, not quite so contemporary. But we love it because for us, that old sofa's got great memories. That's the sofa we bought in our first house. That's the sofa where we sat and watched our first movies together as husband and wife. That's the sofa where we conceived our first... No, we won't go there. Well, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Just something, I know, just something came over me. I don't know what it was. But what we do is that we get, we get, get it back, get it back, Leon. We get attached, we get attached to an old sofa. And then you see, when our kids get older, they can say, do we really have to have that old sofa in the house? It's horrible. They don't know what happened there. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that's even worse. And they want to get rid of it. And then when our grandkids come along, not only is that sofa an old, out-of-date sofa, it's an antique. It bears no resemblance to them, but we love it because it's nostalgic for us. And here's the truth, okay? Churches have lots of old sofas. Things that really worked and were really purposeful, but now are no longer relevant. Now, we all need something to sit down on, so we all need a sofa. But what we need to do is we need to keep that whole idea. We need a sofa, but let's get a sofa that fits our contemporary age. Let's fit a sofa that is fit for purpose now, not just an old one that we're nostalgic about. So take, for instance, evangelism. I'm going to ruffle some feathers this morning. In the 1950s, when Billy Graham, great evangelist, who's now 97 years old, what an amazing man of God, loving the bits, incredible. When he came to the UK in the 1950s as a young man and preached about knowing right from wrong and about turning away from uh, your life away from God and about repentance and about forgiveness. Even people who weren't Christians understood what he meant. Now, that's not the right kind of approach, in my opinion. Because now, in our current context, people aren't in that place where they were in the 1950s. And if we use that old approach, it's like an old sofa. We need evangelism, but we need to find a new way to communicate a message which never changes. Now, here's another picture. Here's another picture. This is a picture I took of myself this morning before I came to church. Um, what's the difference between a bodybuilder and the second picture here, a weightlifter? Both of them work out. Both of them eat way too many eggs. Okay? Both of them work really hard to create muscles. But here's the difference. The bodybuilder builds muscles. For, the only reason is for posing and preening. The weightlifter builds muscles to carry weight. He builds muscles for a purpose. And when we as Christians and we as churches understand our interaction with God, we're going to build spiritual muscles, not just so we can pose in front of a mirror, but so that we can use them for the purpose that God created us to, to go. And so many churches don't get this. It's all about them. And that's just about posing and preening rather than about purpose. Now, I want to address an issue for us this morning. And I want to address an age-old issue. In fact, this is maybe more relevant in the first service, but I'm going to give it you because I gave it them in the first service. I want to talk about music in church. This is a conversation that's, that loads churches through all of history have had this conversation about music in church. And a few weeks ago, we had some people at the first service come to us to say they felt that the music was too loud. Okay, and um, some quiet comments about that. I want to just say this is completely a subjective issue, whether music is too loud or not. I can say this, it is never ever too loud from a health and safety point of view, because we monitor that. From a health and safety point of view, you have to hit music at a certain level of dB, and it has to be over an extended amount of time. It is not possible for us to ever break that, so that's not an issue, so we'll take that right off the table. 
But what we did when, um, when these comments came is that we adjusted. And last week, we went and we adjusted and we turned it down. We've never had so many comments as we had last week that the music was too quiet. <laughs> that people felt awkward singing. That they didn't like the sound of their own voice. Let me make four points to you this morning. Point number one, this is totally subjective, okay? It is not possible to please all the people all of the time. Number two, whether music is too loud or too quiet for you, if you are a mature Christian, should not stop you worshipping God. I had someone come to us last week to say it was too quiet, they couldn't worship. Week before, someone comes out, it was too loud, they couldn't worship. I want to say with all love and with all pastoral heart, if you are a mature Christian this morning, if it's too loud or too quiet, it should not stop you worshipping God. A few years ago, I was in India. Uh, Mark and Shirley Billage were there. Uh, they were living there at the time. And we went to this little church. I've told some of you the story. And it was an amazing little church building. And we were there all dressed up in our Sunday best and ready. And I was speaking. And, and, and we were sat along the back of the, of, the, of the building. And there were two guys, two elders, who got microphones. And they were shouting and screaming down the microphones loud as possible. There was a guy hitting a drum. Another guy hitting another drum. A guy hitting another guy. I don't know what was happening. And then the pastor of the church... The pastor of the church, lovely guy, could not play the keyboard to save his life. Didn't use his fingers, used his forearms. So literally, bashed away, not caused, just bashed away, okay, on the bottom end of the top. I could show you if you want, but it's horrible. And he bashed away as loud as is possible for 45 minutes. And that was the music. And as I stood there waiting, there was a moment when I prayed to Jesus, Lord, please make it stop or take me home. I don't care which one it is, but just do one of them. And then I noticed that some of the people who were there were starting to cry. And there was tears coming down their cheeks as they were lifting their hands up and they were worshipping God. And I couldn't do it because it was just so horrible. But they taught me such a lesson that morning. That whatever the music's like, I'm going to worship him. And I felt God say to me, Leon, I'm listening to something you're not listening to. Because you're only listening to the physical music, but I'm listening to what's going on in their hearts. So I want to say to you guys, if you're a mature Christian this morning, whether it's too loud or too quiet for you, whether it's a song that you like or you don't like, don't please let that stop you worshipping him because he's worth it. He's really worth it. Point three, we care about all of you. Okay? And in some of these conversations, people have said to me, oh, you only care about the young people. You don't care about us. We understand that some elderly folks and some not so elderly folks have got hearing physical related issues. We understand that. We are trying to do all we possibly can do. We've set up a quiet room. We're knocking through in here to create more space. We're doing all we are able to do. We care about every single one of you. But point four, and this is the most important point, we as a church have a big decision to make. The old paradigm is this, that music is an accompaniment to song worship. That's the paradigm I grew up in in the church that I was in, okay? So many people still, if you've been a Christian a while, okay, your paradigm is this, that music is an accompaniment to song worship. So it shouldn't be in your face, it should be in the background so we can hear everyone's voices. But the new paradigm is music is immersion for song worship, not accompaniment. So if we want to reach unchurched people and we want to reach young people, if music becomes so quiet that it's accompaniment, we are never going to reach them. I've done a lot of reading, a lot of research, and a lot of visiting all of the churches all the way around the world who are successfully reaching the unchurched and young people. Music is immersion, not accompaniment. We have to make a choice as a group of people. Are we here to pose and preen in front of the mirror and to hold on to our old sofas? Or are we here to build muscles for purpose and we're reaching lost people for Jesus? And do we want to stay connected so we can reach young people? Or do we want to be a church that only has a past, 
rather than a church that has a past and a future. The decision is ours. We're not going to go to the other extreme right now. We're in a small building here at the moment, okay? But I have to tell you, we are not going to go backwards to an old paradigm, which is more about my background and my preference. We're not going to do that because we want to reach people who are far from Christ. And we want to stay young and we want to stay current. And let me tell you, I when I was in Albania, asked some of the young guys to show me the songs that they're listening to, all right? Because we don't bring many songs in that younger people are listening to. And I listened to them and I thought all of them were horrible. But we're going to bring them in. All right? You see, my choice, in fact, I love unaccompanied choral music. Over Christmas, me and Alison are going to a cathedral to listen to unaccompanied choral music. But do you know what? It ain't all about me. I can go and do that if I want. That's fine. It's not all about me. It's all about him, and it's all about reaching young people, and it's all about reaching unchurched people. And if we're mature, we'll get it, because we want to be a church that not only has a past, but has a future. Amen? So I've said it. <laughs> so Peter gets caught up in this thing that we get caught up in, which is build a shelter, make it all about us, hold on to the old sofa, pose in front of the mirror, and he forgets it's all about purpose. And I love it because it doesn't say that Jesus said anything. But I get the idea that Jesus just put his arm around his shoulder and he just walked down the hill with him. He says, nah, we're not going to do that. And as they walked down the hill, some of the, some of the versions of, of, of the story say that as they went down the hill, they found someone who was, who was in chains with demonic oppression and they set them free. Because we could stay up the hill in our glorious soul survivor experience or we actually could go down the hill and we could set some people free. I'll tell you what we'll do. We need those experiences, but we're not going to keep hold of them because they're not meant to be kept hold of in a tent or on a mountain or in a building, we're going to go out and we're going to set some people free. How about that? Isn't that amazing? And the last thing I want to say is this. We need to realize that God has one central focus and that focus is Jesus. I love the, the version that Matthew tells of this story. Matthew 17, 6 to 8. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. You know, I'm part of the distracted generation as well. But when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And you know, I don't know how long you've been a Christian or whether you are a Christian or whether you're not. But I know that Jesus wants to get your attention. But he can't when we're so distracted. And he can't when we focus on the wrong things. And maybe this morning we need to say, God, would you get me, encourage me, make me be so focused that whenever you want to get my attention, you've got it. You've got it. When I looked up, I saw no one except Jesus. You know, it's possible to be in church all your life and not realize it's all about Jesus. I meet people all the time and I say, do you know Jesus? That's what I want to say. I don't say it, but I want to say, do you really know? Have you ever really met Jesus? And I listen to some of the things that we talk about and some of the things that are issues. And I want to say, have you ever met Jesus? So if you ever really meet Jesus, none of those things are important. You know, recently I wrote a letter of complaint to a company called Mulberry. I don't do this very often at all, but I was so incensed and offended that I felt I had to. I did it in a right way. In fact, me and Alison both, she wrote to Ofcom and I wrote to the company. And we wrote a, a, a complaint letter because in their recent ad for Christmas, they've taken the nativity scene and done a modern telling of the nativity scene. And so there's Mary and there's Joseph, which is a young couple and there's People come and they're obviously meant to be shepherds and, and, and wise men. But, but the central character is, is not the baby Jesus, but a 900-pound handbag. 
And when I looked at that, I thought, oh, yeah, it's just it's advertising, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not prudish. I'm not like that. But I just thought, do you know what? I'm going to write. I thought, actually, what you've done is you've taken the central character from my faith and you've reduced him to a 900-pound handbag. And I had a very bland beige letter back, but I'd said it anyway. And I wonder, what do I replace him with? Not a 900-pound handbag, but maybe something else. What do we as a church replace him with? And as we come up to crazy season, when we're telling everyone else that actually this is about Christ, let's make sure that we are not so distracted by all that stuff that we don't replace him with something else as well. And maybe this morning, you and I need a defining moment of a, a little bit of a moment where, where, where God could pull back the curtain, where the sheet could come off, where the mask could be taken off, and we could see Jesus for who he really is. You know, there's three things that are important in understanding this. You know, there's truth. So truth is truth, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, right? Then there's knowledge. So the truth may be God is love, okay? That's truth, whether you know it or not, believe it or not. Knowledge is, do you know what? I know because I've read and I've heard that God is love and he loves me. That's truth and that's knowledge. But revelation is a whole different deal. When the truth filters through knowledge and goes so deep into me that I get a revelation that God is not only love, but God loves me, everything changes. And that's what happens when God gets your attention long enough. When your phone leaves you for a moment. When the mulberry bag leaves you for a moment, when all of the other distractions leave you long enough that Jesus can get your attention and it goes from truth to knowledge to revelation. So maybe this morning for some of you, you need that. Maybe in the area of provision, you know God provides, you know that's truth and you know it in your head, but you don't really believe it. But the moment when the disciples were with Jesus and they saw him at work and he peeled back the curtain and he fed the multitude, it went from truth to knowledge to revelation. Or maybe you're going through a storm right now and you know that God never leaves you and you know it, you know it's truth and you know it knowledge wise, but you just don't sense it. But you know that moment when Jesus was in the boat and the disciples went through the storm and he woke up and it went from truth to knowledge to revelation and they realized that there's no storm you can go to that Jesus isn't there in the boat and he's got something to say. And maybe you need that this morning. In a moment, we're going to sing. We're going to respond by worshiping this morning and singing the only song that I think we can sing this morning. But maybe you need that. Maybe you could say to God, God, I want to give you five minutes now. And I want to be distraction free. I ain't going to respond to my phone if it buzzes. I'm not going to let my mind wander to what's next. I'm not going to be put off by anything Leon has said or hasn't said. Jesus, I'm going to be totally focused on you for the next five minutes God, would you pull back the curtain? Give me that moment of revelation where I see you for who you really are. Problem is, I think many of us are so distracted by what Jesus has given us, we miss out on who Jesus is. Some of us are distracted by what Jesus has done. We're missing what Jesus is doing. When he gets our attention, everything can change. Let's pray. Just take a moment and... Jesus, I want to thank you so much that you're such an amazing God. Lord, when you, Jesus, when you revealed who you were on that mountain, nobody up there was disappointed. There was no anticlimax. There was no, oh, it's the caretaker. 
Oh, it's a little old man. Oh, it's Tom Cruise again. There was none of that. God, when you pulled back the curtain, when you took off the mask, when you threw off the white sheet, God, you took their breath away. When they realized that you're the Christ, son of the living God. What a defining moment in the lives of those three guys. And yet, Lord, they did what we do. They wanted to hold on to it, protect it and preserve it, rather than embracing it, carrying it down the mountain and going to free up those people that were in chains. God, I pray that we wouldn't be like that. I pray that we would have those moments. But God, I pray that we would let you put your arm around us and take us down that mountain and out into where it needed to happen. And Lord, this morning, if maybe some of us need that revelation moment, maybe some of us need to know that you are in our boat and that you are in that storm and you always have something to say. You are the God who provides. You are that God who heals. You are that God who sets free. Maybe we, need, maybe we know it in our head. Maybe we know the truth and we have the knowledge, but we just need the revelation. And Lord, I pray that in these moments as we sing, as we worship you, God, could we give you five minutes of distraction-free space where we just engage with you and Jesus then, would you come and would you pull back the curtain again? And God, I pray that when we look up, we'll see no one except Jesus. Let's stand together.